chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. That's Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God, in power according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, Because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son. That without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers. Asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I've often intended to come to you, but this far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Good evening, everybody. Uh, If you you have your Bible with you, please have it open at Romans chapter 1. And before we come to that, we'll just pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We thank you that your word contains all that we need to know to make us wise unto salvation. But Father, we are conscious that left to ourselves, we cannot gain from its study. So we pray that you would come amongst us now, that we would be aware of your spirit being with us, that you would come and illumine our dark minds and warm our cold hearts and bend our stubborn wills, that, Father, through the truth of your word, you would change us and make us the people we ought to be. Come and speak to us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this evening I wanted to look uh, at verses 16 and 17 of Romans chapter 1. 
which are very well-known verses. And you might wonder, why are we looking at such a well-known verse? Well, I want to give you a couple of men from the past who would commend these verses to you. Two men I think you'll have heard, I hope you'll have heard, of both of them. The first man is a man by the name of Martin Luther. Now, I assume most of us know who Martin Luther is. I can't see people going, uh, so I'm hoping that's right. <laughs> now, I think 2017 was the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And lots of churches would have done various things uh, to commemorate that. And uh, in Grace Church in Halewood, we had a series on various people from the Reformation. And I was given Martin Luther. And I took a day off work to, to get it ready, you know, and... Uh, the next day I went into work and the girl who was sitting next to me said, what were you doing yesterday? I said, oh, I was studying. Um, I'm going to speak about Martin Luther. And she said, oh, I know, yeah. I have a dream. <laughs> I, I said, no, that was Abba. No, no. <laughs> you'll find that Martin Luther King was named after Martin Luther. And Martin Luther was a monk, as you probably know. And in 1510, when he was 27 years of age, he was in the monastery, and he was the undoubted star of the monastery. Now, I've never been a teacher, but imagine if you're a teacher. When Ofsted come in, you want to get rid of the, the duffer pupils and have the good pupils in the front. Well, if Ofsted ever came to his monastery, they may not, but if he did, he'd be the one they'd want at the front. You look at his report card, he wasn't the cleverest monk there was. But when he came to the column marked effort, eight stars or whatever they are nowadays, all the way down. All the other monks looked at him and said, this fella one day is going to be a saint. When it came to self-denial, Martin threw the sink at it, the kitchen sink. He would freeze himself, he'd starve himself, he'd whip himself. But with all of his effort and with all of his commitment, there was one question which haunted him. And that was, what must I do to be saved? Here's a, a direct quote from him. He said this, I lived an irreproachable life, but felt uneasy in conscience. I didn't love, but I hated the righteousness of God. And the man, uh, the man who took his confession in the monastery, was concerned about him, and he sent him off to Rome. I guess maybe they thought the stinting headquarters uh, would do him some good. I don't know. But they sent him off to Rome, and he came to, to the point where he could see the city, and he fell down on his knees and wept. And he came into the, uh, the Vatican, and he came to a place called Scala Sancta. Now, what they are? They're a set of stairs which um, were brought from Jerusalem in the 4th century. Supposed to be stairs of the Judgment Hall of Pilate. Okay, spoiler alert, they're not. But, you know, that's what they thought they were. And what pilgrims did, and actually still do, is they would crawl up these stairs on their knees, and at every stair they would stop, and they would say the Lord's Prayer. And Luther was doing this, and he was saying the Lord's Prayer, in Latin, obviously, and he was also praying for his father-in-law. But he said that at every stair, what would come to his mind was Romans chapter 1, verse 17. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed 
And this one statement was a barrier to him. Here's the righteousness of God. It's unattainable. He might have had a mug with the, you know, the best monk in the world. But he knew he would never be good enough. But when he was converted, when he came to understand the gospel, he said this. Once I hated the righteousness of God, but now I love it. It is the sweetest of all words. Because the gates of paradise, paradise have been opened. And these two verses were instrumental in changing Martin Luther. And not just him, but all of Germany, all of Western Europe. I don't think it's too much an exaggeration to say the history of the world since then. Because of these two verses. Another man, I hope you've all heard of, is John Wesley. A little bit later than, than, than Luther, he was in the 18th century. Famous for founding Methodism, or one of the men who founded Methodism, with his brother and George Whitfield. Now, when Wesley went to university, he founded the Holy Club. And they used to meet every day at four o'clock in the morning. Imagine that. And he, he used to say, if you're not willing to get up with this, then, you know, where's your commitment? Four o'clock in the morning. He went off to America to be a missionary. And he did the Holy Club and he did his meetings and he was a missionary and he wasn't a Christian. And it wasn't until he came home, a famous incident in in a little chapel that he talks about where his heart was strangely warmed. And what was he listening to? He was listening to Romans chapter 1 verses 16 and 17. So why am I telling you about these two men? Well, I want you to have an idea of the impact that these verses have had. That these two short verses are spiritual dynamite. So if you're a Christian here this evening, and you don't really want to make any waves, if you're happy to to drift along as a sort of a half-hearted Harriet or a, a lukewarm Lenny, well, you best not listen to what these verses have to say. Or maybe you're not a Christian here this evening, and you too want to have just an easy life. And you want to be left to glide smoothly downhill into a lost eternity. Well, if that's what you want, maybe you shouldn't listen to these verses either. But for those of us who are left, what we have is the greatest explanation of the greatest news in the world. I was, I don't always think of a title for my, my sermons. I, I did toy with the idea of recording the, these verses, the 12 points of the gospel. Not because I've got 12 points, don't worry. But what we do have are three fours. That's a bad pun. <laughs> so for each of these fours, for each of these becauses, he is answering a question. So first of all, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel so what we have in the first 15 verses of Romans is he gives a brief introduction and a greeting and what he's saying to them is look I really really want to come and see you he says verse 9 verse 10 I'm always praying for you verse 11 I'm longing to see you verse 12 I want to come so we'll all be encouraged Verse 15, I am eager to preach the gospel. So the question is, Paul, why are you so keen to go to this place? 
And the answer is four, because I love the gospel. That's the first point. So then the second question will be, well, well why do you love the, gas- the gospel? And we get the answer again in verse 16. Four, it is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. I love this message because it's the power of God for salvation. So how does this salvation work? Chapter 3, verse, uh, sorry, verse 17. Chapter 1, verse 17. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. So number one, the first four is for I am not ashamed of the gospel. What does that mean? Well, there's only two words we need to understand. <laughs> and once we get them, I think we can get the rest of what this is about. The first word is the word gospel. What does that mean? You know, this, this week we've been looking at the, the Royal Jubilee, the Platinum Jubilee. You know, I've been staying down with my, my, uh, my daughter and her four-year-old son came home from school and said, we had a Jubilee party. So we've been calling it a Jubilee all week, the Jubilee and the Jubilee party. Well, that's been gone. I don't remember a few years ago, you may remember, there was a royal wedding when Harry and Meghan got married. Now, I can't say I watched much of it on the telly, but it was on the telly. But one thing I do remember is there was a sermon preached at his wedding that caused a reaction. And it was the reactions that really irked me. It was the reaction of some Christians and it was the reaction of some non-Christians. Everyone else, fine. Just those two. You see, the non-Christians, if you went onto Twitter or, or various other social media, what the non-Christians were saying was, like, oh, this fella, he's going on too long. When will he ever end? It's going on and on and on. So I went onto YouTube and I looked it up and found the sermon. And it was 13 minutes long. <laughs> I made kids talks longer than 13 minutes. You know, I quite like progressive rock. I think all the songs on my iPod are longer than 13 minutes. I've got drum solos longer. There's nothing. Of course, important things. Things about life and death take a bit of time to explain. 13 minutes, oh, it's too much. But I also got some reaction from some Christian, some friends of mine, who heard this man, he was an American, so the bishop, and they said, oh, isn't it good? Here's a world wedding and the gospel's being preached. But no, it wasn't. Because this man stood up and he said nothing about sin. And he said nothing about the deity of Christ. He scrupulously avoided calling him the Lord Jesus Christ. He just referred to Jesus as Jesus of Nazareth all the time. There was nothing about repentance. There was nothing about faith. His message was just, well, you know, God loves us. We should just love one another and that'll be great. Well, that's not the gospel, is it? Sinclair Ferguson said, the greatest single mistake a minister of the gospel can make is to assume that the gates of paradise have been opened to all his hearers. Well, that was one of several mistakes that this man made. And it's not one we're going to make this evening. So we're going to answer, answer the question, what is the gospel? Now, there's a broad answer to that, and there is a narrow answer to that. I think Romans were looking at the, the narrower answer of what, is, what it is it that means to be saved. So what is the gospel message? 
Well, the gospel message begins with God. A God who has created everything. A God who sustains the universe by the power of his word. A God who is pure and holy. A God who makes the same demands of you and me. That we too should be pure and holy. And that means the gospel is also about guilt. You know, if you read through the book of Romans, the next couple of chapters, that's what Paul's looking at. And he looks at the Gentiles and he said, look, you've got no excuse. And he looks at the Jews and he said, look, you're just as bad. And the conclusion reaches in chapter 3, verse 10, is there is none righteous. No, not one. It says in the book of Isaiah, all of our righteousness is, righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Now, you know, if you read the, the commentators on, on that, that verse, they have a bit of trouble uh, to convey the meaning of, of filthy rags. And I tried to think of a, a modern equivalent. And there was a news story, um, going back a few years now, about something in London in the sewers where the sewers got clogged up by what was known as a fat bag. Do you remember the story? This was an enormous lump of gunk. That's the technical term for it. That they found down in the sewers. It was the weight of 11 double-decker buses. It was the size of two football pitches. And it was made up of congealed wet wipes, grease, cooking fat and sewage. And some poor fella had to go down and cut it up and you know, get rid of it. Oh. Imagine doing that. What are you doing today in work? Oh, you know, just clearing a fat bag. Well, here's something that's unspeakable, that's horrible, that's vile. Well, says Isaiah, that's, that's our righteousnesses. Notice, that's not our sins. This is our good stuff. This is our successful days. Well, you know, when we've given to charity and, and helped others and gone to church and listened for 30 minutes or more. And we read our Bible and we prayed. And there's not much of the good stuff. But what there is, is rotten and worthless. And we're not just missing the mark, are we? We don't need VAR to come and draw the line to see that we haven't made it. It's not just our toenail that's in sin, it's all of us. That's a different analogy the Bible uses. We're in debt. We've got this squillion pound debt hanging over our heads and we put our hands in our pockets and all we've got a bit of fat bag. How are we going to pay that off? We can't. Because God is holy and we are not. And we are sinners guilty and rightly condemned and separated from God in this life and the next. And that doesn't sound like good news. But of course the gospel is also about grace. That although we deserve nothing... He has provided everything. That the Lord Jesus Christ has lived a life that we couldn't live. That the Lord Jesus Christ has died a death that we deserve. That he has, has conquered sin and death and hell, has risen from the dead. And there's nothing we can do, and there's nothing we can contribute. And we need the Spirit to come and open our eyes to see the truth, so that we can turn from our sin and trust in Christ alone. And that's the good news that Paul wants to come to Rome to preach. So how do we apply that? Well, if you're not a believer here this evening, you need to get right with God. You need to get alone and pray to God, 
God be merciful to me, a sinner. If you're a Christian here this evening, you need to constantly remind yourself that you're a debtor to mercy alone, of the glory of the gospel that has saved you. So that's the word gospel. But what about the word ashamed? What does he mean? He says, I'm not ashamed. Well, a lot of writers say, why would he be tempted to be ashamed? And they look at the city of Rome. And they say, well, look, here's the city and here's the Colosseum and and here's this mighty emperor over this great empire. And maybe when Paul goes to Rome and he says, who do you follow? It's this carpenter from the middle of nowhere and he was crucified. Or maybe you look at the the dominant culture of the day, which wasn't the Romans, strangely, it was the Greeks. And they had all their great orators and their philosophers. And they're so clever. If you've ever read philosophy, but it does your head in. There's a lot of words signifying next to nothing. And the gospel is so simple, it's almost childlike. Well, that's good because a child can understand it. And certainly those sort of fears can be translated to the modern day. You know, it's not cool to be a Christian, is it? If we say we believe the Bible, we're going to be open to ridicule. The mass media certainly is controlled by evolutionary atheism, by secularism. And that shouldn't really trouble us, you know. When it comes to philosophy, there are four big questions that philosophy tries to answer. That is, where are we from? Why are we here? What is right and wrong? And what happens when we die? And the cynics have lots of questions, but none of them give answers to those questions like the Christian faith. But is that really what he means when he says ashamed? You know, I remember we used to do, I used to do teenagers work years ago, and often if, if the girls have to do something embarrassing, just slightly embarrassing, they go like this and go, I feel ashamed, I feel ashamed. Is that what he means? Well, I don't think it is. I was reading Dr. Lloyd-Jones on these verses and he said, when he uses this, I'm not ashamed, it's an example of litotes. And I read that and thought, what's that? Okay, so I went home. The same day I read it, I went home and put the radio on. There was cricket commentary was on the, on the radio. And somebody had scored a century. I can't remember who it was. Probably Joe Ruth, it usually is. Who scored a century. And the cricket commentator said, whoa, that wasn't a bad knock. And then he paused and said, and that's an example of Lytotes, if ever I heard one. I was like, I've never heard this word before, and suddenly it's come up twice. So what does it mean? Well, it means using a negative to emphasize an opposite positive. So I, I was watching one of the things on the BBC website about the Queen, and they, they showed a clip from 1992. Now, I don't know if you remember 1992, a lot of things went wrong for the Queen in 1992. You know, the, there was a big fire, wasn't there, in Windsor Castle and all sorts of other things. And she called it her, her Annus Horribilis. A bit of Latin for you there. <laughs> and she got to give this speech at the end of the year. And she said, 1992 has not been a year of undiluted pleasure. <laughs> and that's like Totes. That's exactly the same thing. Using a negative to emphasize the opposite view. So what Paul is saying here is, look, the reason I'm keen to come to Rome is not for the people, although I'm sure you will be glad to see the people. It's not because Rome was important, although it was important. No, it's because he relishes, he revels, he glories in the gospel. You know, when I was a kid growing up, 
uh, one of the big football stars in the country, really, was Kevin Keegan. And he, you know, he scored lots of goals. He played for the wrong team, but he scored lots of goals for, for, for them lot. And, and for England as well. And he was famous, you know. And then he went on into management. And he managed the English team and then a few other Newcastle as well, I think. And if you go to YouTube and put Kevin Keegan in as a search, the first thing that comes up is Kevin Keegan rant. You know this. And it's not some great goal he scored. It's not some great piece of skill. It's some rant he made when he was a manager. And what it was was Sir Alex Ferguson had said something to wind him up. And it got under his skin. And he got onto this interview. And normally football interviews are pretty dull. You know, the, you know it's a game of two halves and, you know, and six as a pad and all that business. But it wasn't like that. He said, what he said is terrible. And if we beat them, if we beat Manchester United, he said, I love it. He said, I love it. Pointing at the camera. Pointing at the, the camera. Well, I don't think Sky have ever interviewed the Apostle Paul, but if he did, and they said, well, Paul, what do you think of the gospel? I think his reaction would be exactly the same. I love it. And that shouldn't just be the response of the Apostle, should it? It should be the response of you and me if we know the truth. Now, I read this, article, I read this series of books by Crossway. And in the introduction... They talk about preaching and they say there's three things you need. Logos, ethos, and pathos. I thought they were the three musketeers, but no, they're not. No, the three Greek words. Logos is the word. So when we, we come together to, to listen, we're listening to God's word. It's not my thought. It's not my wisdom. If that was the case, 30 minutes would be plenty of time. What we're looking at is what does God have to say to us? If you want to apply that, I think we should be praying for those who stand here and preach for your minister week by week. What should you pray for him? That he'll be faithful to the truth. So there has to be logos. But there has to be ethos. What does that mean? It means that your life must change as well. You can't preach or listen and do it in isolation. Your life has to change as well. But there has to be pathos. And that means passion. And that's not just preaching, that's the Christian life as well. We need to understand the word, we need to obey it, we need to love it. If not, maybe we don't understand the gospel at all. And that brings us to the second point. Okay, Paul, you want to come because you love the gospel? Why do you love the gospel? For it is the power of God for salvation. You see, it's about salvation. You know, we sometimes use uh, resources in our junior church by an organization called Faith in Kids. I don't know if you've ever, ever heard of it or use it, but if you don't, you should. It's, it's really good. <laughs> and one of the writers for that is a lady called Amy Smith, and she was doing a children's talk at our, our fellowship one day. And she was talking about the wise and the foolish builders. And she talked about the, the foolish builder building his house upon the sand, and then the storm came. And what was the storm? She said, this is the storm of God's judgments. And I thought, wow, she's got that right. You know, very often you hear people talking about that, that parable and say, well, it's all the troubles and things. Like, it's not troubles of life. It's the storm of God's judgments. And if you listen week in and week out and don't obey the call to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you're on sinking sand and God's judgment is going to come crashing down.
You see, if the gospel is just an alternative lifestyle, well, we can take it or leave it. If the gospel it just gives us some coping strategies for life, well, you know, you can get that from Slimming World or Alcoholics, Alcoholics Anonymous, or if you can say it, or the cults. But it's not. It's about being delivered, being saved, being rescued from a lost eternity. And we don't want more people to come into the church just so we can pass ourselves on the back. It's because people outside of the church, maybe our friends, our family, our neighbours, our workmates, they're not neutral. If they're outside of Christ, they're lost and need to be saved. And that's why we love the gospel, because it's the only hope of salvation. He loves the gospel because it's the power of God. You know, he's writing to these Romans. You know, Rome is a big power, isn't it? When I was at school, I, I was going to say study Latin. I took Latin for two years. I think study is maybe a bit of a strong word to use. I was in the lessons. Uh, and <laughs> one of the fellows we looked at was a man called Tacitus, General Tacitus. And he talked in one of his books about Pax Romana. That's Roman peace, is what it means. And he said this, we make a desert and call it peace. In other words, the Romans went in and just destroyed everything. And then said, there we are, everything's quiet, good. And they devastated the entire world, you know, with their armies and their straight roads. And this verse says, there's another power unleashed on the world. And just like Rome, it's laid waste to its enemies. Its enemies are sin and death and hell, and they've been defeated, they've been vanquished. And just like Rome, it's enormously efficient, because it saves men and women for all eternity. And Rome, with all of its power and all of its pomp, can't provide forgiveness, can't provide reconciliation between God and man. You know, if the success of the gospel depended on our power, well, it wouldn't get very far, would it? So it's about salvation. It's for the power of God. It's open to all. Here's Paul on Sky Sports again. Who are you going to reach, Paul? Well, the Jews and the Gentiles. In other words, everyone. The Jew first, that's simply chronology. That's, you look read through the book of Acts, that was the method he used. He went to the synagogue first, and then he went out but it's open to all, to everyone who believes. And nobody is outside of the scope of the gospel. And it goes to all that all may receive it. So Paul, why do you love the gospel so much? Because it's the power of God to save anyone who believes. So that leads us to the final question, the final point. How does it work? Verse 17. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Uh, Dr. Lloyd-Jones again. If you're speaking of Romans, you've got to quote him. It's a law. He said, there is no Christianity apart from revelation. In other words, the gospel isn't a treasure hunt. We're not searching for clues. It's not a box of Lego we can tip up and make our own model out of. No, it's a declaration. It's an announcement. Something is being revealed. What's being revealed is the righteousness of God. Doctor again said, understanding verse 17 is the key to these verses, to this epistle, 
to all epistles to the Christian faith. In fact, if you don't understand verse 17, it's doubtful if you're a Christian at all, he said. Certainly it was true for Luther. Understanding what it meant by the righteousness of God was a light bulb moment to him. That one phrase had blocked his way as a monk. He thought of the Ten Commandments. He thought of perfection. He thought of holiness. And he could never reach it. But here is the righteousness that comes from God and that satisfies God. You see, the gospel isn't simply forgiveness and deliverance from hell and a changed life. I mean, they're all good. But it's more than that. It's acceptance that you and I, unworthy as we are, can stand before him both now and in eternity. How? Through the Lord Jesus Christ. That God in his grace has solved the final problem, has given us the final solution. That the Lord Jesus Christ has fulfilled all of the law. What does that mean? One last story. A few years ago, we went away for our wedding anniversary. Um, now, our, our wedding anniversary is in March, so it's not always uh, glorious sunshine. But this particular week, it was. We went away to Betty Code for a couple of days. And it was unbroken blue skies, just like in June. Or not, well, you know, but it was. A couple of days, it was lovely. And as we were coming home, my wife said to me, well, the only thing, the only drawback is we forgot to take a camera. So we haven't got any pictures of this lovely blue sky to prove how nice it was. Then a few days later, uh, an envelope came through the door and I opened it up. And I said, I've got some good news and some bad news. The good news is we have got a picture from when we went away. The bad news is it was from a speed camera that was in, <laughs> set up in North Wales. Okay. <laughs> Okay, so there you go. So, so we've got the speed cam. Now, the laws of the road, there are two ways you can fulfill the law when it contains traffic. One is, you can never go over the limit. Always stay on or below the speed limit. That's the right thing to do, obviously. Sometimes you don't, and you get a fine. How do you fulfill the law then? Well, you pay the penalty. So here's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's fulfilled the law and he's kept all of it perfectly. But he's also fulfilled the law and he's paid the penalty as well. And the righteousness of God that we're given is his righteousness given to us. And that leaves us with one final question. How do we take hold of this righteousness? And the answer verse 17 gives us is it's by faith. Although this is revelation, it's not new. After all, he's quoting from the book of Habakkuk here. There's not one way in the Old Testament and another in the New Testament. There's not a plan A and a plan B. How could Adam and Enoch and Abraham and you know, David and Daniel, all that, how could they be saved? How could they stand before God? It's by faith. They would look forward. They know that God is going to provide a deliverer, a saviour. We don't really know how much they understood or knew, but they, that's what they put their faith in. Now, it's a lot easier for you and me. We have the complete word of God that tells us about the finished work of Christ. So here tonight, are you a believer? Do you love this gospel? Are you not a believer? Do you understand your need? 
because the offer still stands for everyone who believes. You will never be good enough. Your efforts can never do it. But Christ offers all you need. And that's really what our final hymn tells us in the words of the chorus. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all of the ground is sinking sand. Let's stand and sing that together.